Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Last week marked the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion into Ukraine. And uh, just two weeks prior to the invasion, Vladimir Putin had publicly announced that there were no plans to invade Ukraine. Ironically, a year later, and many Russian embarrassing defeats later, the world is starting to believe Putin that he may have had every intention all along of invading Ukraine without any actual strategic plan for doing so. Putin may have promised to restore Russia to its former power and glory, but as Putin is now finding out the hard way, a promise is very different than a plan. Well, last Sunday in our journey together through the Exodus story, we examined God's promise of deliverance, what he will do for his people. But this morning, we're going to turn our attention now to God's plan for deliverance. How is he going to accomplish it? And as we're going to see, God's going to do it in six steps, these are the six P's of God's plan to preserve his people. So with that introduction, I invite you to stand as you're able once again for the reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 6, verse 10. We'll go, God willing, all the way through chapter 7, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am a man of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, <coughs> and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Eliasheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. 
and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when I spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, they also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down a staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And now, Father, as we submit ourselves under its authority, would you soften hearts this morning? Would you soften hearts to receive your word, to receive the gospel, receive your son Jesus? Would you help us to see him in this text and our need for a savior and your provision Savior in your son Jesus. Receive him as such, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> Step number one of God's plan for deliverance. Every good plan starts with a purpose, a goal. What is the objective of this mission to which God is called Moses? Verse 13 tells us God gave them a charge a purpose, a command about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is nothing new. This is the same purpose. It's the same charge that God had given Moses back in chapter 3 when he initially commissioned him at the burning bush and again in chapter 4 when Moses was making excuses and dragging his feet in Midian and again last week in chapter 6 after Pharaoh had doubled their oppression and Moses' faith was beginning to fail him. So once again here, we ended, you'll remember last Sunday, with verse 9, and Moses obeying God and relaying God's promises of deliverance to his people Israel, but we heard they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. And so what is God's response this morning to being distrusted by his own people? Well, verse 10 says, fine, Moses, go talk to Pharaoh. The Israelites won't believe you. Go tell Pharaoh, I'm going to deliver my people. This is my word. Now, remember, Moses had already gone to Pharaoh to try and deliver that message at the beginning of chapter 5. It didn't go so great. That was the whole reason why Pharaoh doubled Israel's workload. Moreover, again, God's people have stopped listening. They've stopped believing God's promises. And so Moses, somewhat understandably here, in verse 12, he objects. He says, God, the people of Israel haven't even listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? And then he reminds God once again, I am of uncircumcised lips. God, I don't talk good. Some of you got it. It's grammatically incorrect, right? I don't talk so good. I love uh, how Philip Ryken exposits this. He says, for a man who kept complaining that he couldn't speak, Moses sure has a lot to say. 
We've heard him raise the same objection before. He raised it back at the burning bush when God first called him in chapter 4. Lord, I'm not eloquent. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And Moses will mention his alleged speech impediment once again at the end of chapter 6. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, it would be easy for you and me this morning to criticize Moses. Criticize Moses for his faithlessness, for his disobedience, but... Let's turn the mirror around on ourselves this morning, make it personal. Aren't we often guilty of the very same thing, very same offense, responding to God's clear call on our lives with nothing but our own lame excuses? God says, don't forsake the assembly of believers, go to church. But we say, it's been a really long week. I need to sleep in. God says, use your gifts to serve the church. We say, well, I serve for 20 years. It's somebody else's turn. God says, give generously to the poor. We say, well, that's the government takes care of them enough already. Maybe I'll give when I build up a little better, bigger nest egg, rainy day fund for myself first. God says, go and make disciples. We say, eh, she's already heard the gospel. She grew up in the church. She knows the truth already. What good is it going to do anyway for me to bring Jesus up other than just make things awkward? Perhaps like Moses, our disobedience stems from an even deeper misunderstanding of God's purpose behind his commands, his purpose behind his calling. You gave up on church because you weren't getting anything out of the the services, but you forgot that church isn't for you. It's for God. God designed church for him, for him to get something out of our services together, namely your worship. You're not here to receive, you're here to give. You quit serving because you didn't feel like your gifts were being fully utilized, appreciated, but you forgot the purpose of serving isn't for you to feel fulfilled, it's for God's mission to get fulfilled. We could evangelize him because we never seem to win any souls. I don't win any converts. I don't see people turning of their sins and coming to faith in Christ, but we forgot our purpose in witnessing isn't to change anyone's heart. We can't do that. Only God can do that. Our job is simply to share the truth, to make Christ known, and to leave the rest up to God. That is our purpose. That is our calling, to make him known. Brothers and sisters, God has given us his plan for delivering people out of modern-day slavery, their slavery to sin. It is by faith in Jesus. Romans 10, everyone who believes in him will be saved. But God has also given us our role to play, our purpose, our charge in that calling. How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Our purpose is to make sure they hear. They think they've heard. You think they've heard. They know about it. Everybody in America knows about Jesus. They were raised in the church, but they don't know. They think he was a good moral example. They think he was a good teacher. They think he, he was somebody to look up to and try and be like. Be a nice person. Nice enough, maybe God will let you into heaven. They don't know who Jesus really is. And our job is to tell them, how are they to believe in, whom, in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Preaching the truth of who Jesus is. He is Savior, Lord and Savior, because we are sinners, and that's exactly what we need. How are they to hear without preaching? So preach, that's the action item. That's our purpose, that preach, Mark 16, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whole creation. Why stop with humans? Preach to the rocks. According to Jesus, if we won't praise him, they will. That is how zealous our God is for his glory. And make, make no mistake, God will receive the glory. Either by saving sinners or by judging them. Either way, God gets glory. Either by displaying his great mercy or by displaying his great justice and holiness. Either way, God will get the glory because, friends, that is ultimately the purpose of all of creation. You, me, everything that exists, exists for God's glory, 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Just getting warmed up. Step number two in God's plan of deliverance is a pedigree. Verses 14 through 27, Moses interrupts the flow of the narrative storyline to give us his pedigree genealogy. Now, we've covered in the past uh, the importance of genealogies, all the reasons why God devotes so much time, so much valuable real estate in his word, the Bible, to these long, boring lists of names. There's a whole sermon back in our Tough Text series three years ago. Uh, 1 Chronicles 1 through 11, just 11 chapters of names. Why? Well, a number of reasons. They prove that God cares about people on the individual, personal level. They prove that God had a plan all along, that far before Moses and Aaron ever showed up on the scene, God had already determined to save his people. God was already putting the pieces in place to make it happen. Genealogies show us that when it comes to redemptive history, God is not building the plane as he flies it. He's intentional. God is sovereign in all that he ordains. Third, genealogies prove that God cares about the past. You and I suffer from historical amnesia. We forget that that the world didn't start the day we were born. But God doesn't. Micah 5.2 says that his plan to save us through Christ by sending his son Jesus, Micah says his coming forth was from of old, from ancient days. Fourth, genealogies help establish historical reliability. Christopher Wright explains of this passage, we are given the lifespan ages of three characters here, Levi, 137 years, Kohath, 133 years, and Amram, 137 years. These, these three generations leading up to Moses. This ties this genealogy to the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Levi's great-grandfather, God warned Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign country for 400 years, but would be liberated in the fourth generation. Counting Levi as the first generation, Moses and Aaron belong to the fourth generation. And the combined ages of their three ancestors here, Levi, Kohath, and Amran, comes out, any good mathematicians? 137, 137, 133. Quick math. 407 years, which... Once you figure, Levi and Kohath, Amram, they didn't father their sons immediately at birth, right? So subtract 70-ish years. But then Moses didn't liberate Israel until he was 80 plus years, so you've got to add 80 back in. If you're not good at math, it comes out to 400. God's math is perfect. That's the point. Historical reliability of the Bible. There's more. I, again, pulling most of this from, from tough text sermon. God cares about his people, his plan, his past about plausibility, about the particularities. Our God is a details-oriented God, and he cares about the prosaic, the mundane, the boring, the everyday parts of our lives. God cares about it all. But perhaps the biggest question, specifically about Moses and Aaron's genealogy here, is this. Why did God wait all the way until chapter 6 to give it to us? Usually you expect to find a person's lineage right up front, right when you meet him back in chapter 2 in Moses' case. Why do you wait until chapter 6? Seems like a bit of a non sequitur at this point, given its placement. But I think its placement is actually a clue to help us understand Moses' primary purpose in providing his pedigree precisely at this point in the plot line. Notice, it is sandwiched right in between almost identical accounts in verses 10 through 13, and then again in verses 28 through 30, where Moses questions God's calling. Verse 12, God, Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. Are you sure you've got the right guy in sending me? And then again in verse 30, he's not going to listen to me. You're calling the wrong guy. Now remember, Moses wrote the book of Exodus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe his genealogy here is Moses' attempt to get us to empathize with them, to explain why Moses so profoundly doubted God's calling, why he thought, surely, God, you've called the wrong guy. A lot of commentators say that the purpose of the family tree here is to show Moses and Aaron's fitness for his calling. I couldn't disagree more. I think it's the exact opposite. I think it's to show 
how unfit they were for the job, how, how God was going to save Israel through them in spite of them, not because of them, in spite of their lack of credentials, in spite of the, the, the imperfections of their family line. Why else would Moses start the genealogy with Reuben in verse 14 and Simeon in verse 15? Those are his great-granduncles, not even in his bloodline. Why bother including them in the genealogy? Do you remember what Reuben was famous for, infamous for? He slept with his stepmom. Yeah. Reuben should have gotten Jacob's birthright as the firstborn son, but when your son sleeps with your wife, you make other arrangements in the will. Remember what Simeon was known for. Simeon and Levi, together, they killed a bunch of Canaanites and got the whole family kicked out of the land. Then later, he married a Canaanite. So Jacob's dying prayer about Simeon and Levi was this. Let my soul, God, come not into their counsel. O my glory, be joined not to their company. Cursed be their anger. I will scatter them in Israel. In other words, God, I know I'm about to die. Please don't let me spend the rest of eternity with these two sons. Think about it. Moses introduces himself and his brother Aaron here in verse 20 of the genealogy. Why does he continue and give us another five verses of genealogy? Why not just stop? Usually genealogy stops with the person you're concerned about, Moses and Aaron. But he keeps going. Why did he continue and mention his cousin Korah in verse 21? Korah is irrelevant. He's not, again, in Moses' bloodline. It's his cousin. But he's not irrelevant in Moses' life, his later life. This is the same Korah who will lead the rebellion against Moses later in Numbers chapter 16. By including him here, Moses is effectively saying, he's reminding us, my own people rejected me. I've been rejected constantly. Can you understand why I would have doubted that Pharaoh would ever listen to me? It's the same reason Moses includes Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, his, his nephews, here in verse 23, later in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu will ignore God's instructions for proper worship of God, and they will get incinerated for it. Moses is saying, can you blame me for doubting that God's calling me? My pedigree is full of these infamous sinners for generations before me and generations after me. Surely God's going to call, call you somebody with, with less baggage than me. But notice where Moses stops his list in verse 25 with Phineas. Anyone know what Phineas was famous for? This is like deep cuts. I don't know. Years later in Numbers chapter 25, the Israelites will fall so deep into blatant sin by intermarrying with the Midianites falling away after their false gods that God's going to send a plague on his people. And Phineas was the priest at the time. While he was weeping over Israel's sin, there was a guy named Zimri who walked right past him. Phineas was at the entrance of the, the, the tent of meeting, the tab God's tabernacle. Zimri walked right past him into the tabernacle and starts having sex with a Midianite woman right on the altar in God's house. And so Phineas grabs a spear and he skewers them. Shish kebab, human shish kebab, which prompts God to respond this way. Now I'm stopping the plagues. Behold, I give Phineas my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. got to move on. Let me try and sum, sum this up for us. The Levites, Moses' line, were Israel's priests. But going all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother, the very first priest, whose very first act as priest, we will find in Exodus chapter 32 in the weeks to come, is to build the people a golden calf so they can worship fake calves instead of Yahweh. From the start, the priesthood, just like Moses' bloodline here, was polluted. It's corrupted, broken, full of imperfections. But Moses leaves us with a note of hope here. 
in verse 25 with this righteous priest, this zealous priest for God's holiness, who would make atonement for the people of Israel and thereby receive God's covenant of peace. Who, of course, points us ahead to another greater priest who was to come, who would make atonement and make peace, not by skewering the sinners, but by receiving the Spirit himself for us in our place. And even greater Moses, the Messiah, that's another reason Moses gives us his lineage here. He knew, Moses knew how massively significant, how absolutely central this Exodus story was going to become in Israel's history. And Moses didn't want anyone to be tempted to think that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised one, the snake crusher, the lion of Judah, because he's not a Judahite. Moses is a Levite. Moses is saying, I'm not your savior. No. The hope of Israel, the true hope, is still yet to come. You're going to have to wait another 1,500 years, but he's going to be worth the wait. Step number three in God's plan of deliverance. It's a proxy. In the meantime, while we wait, while the Israelites waited, God gives them, makes for them, a proxy. God gives Moses a purpose. He reminds Moses of his pedigree, his broken family lineage. And now, thirdly, God makes Moses his proxy. A proxy is someone authorized to act as the substitute for another, an agent with the full authority to act on another's behalf. Chapter 6 ended with Moses asking God, how will Pharaoh listen to me? And now chapter 7 opens with God answering him, he won't. You're right, Moses. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. But guess what? I'm going to make him listen to me. He will listen to me one way or another. I've told you for the past two weeks now that God has been humbling Moses. We've seen in chapters 5, chapter 6, God's been bringing Moses lower and lower, bringing Moses to the end of himself so that he would be forced to turn to God as his only salvation, rely on God's strength and his weakness. Well, now we discover here in chapter 7 that God's plan was even more amazing than that because he didn't just want Moses to lean on God. God's plan for Moses was that he would be filled with God. God's purpose in emptying Moses of himself was so that he could then fill Moses with God's self. Because ultimately, Pharaoh doesn't need to listen and obey Moses. He needs to hear and heed God's voice. The Egyptians don't need to know who Moses is. That's been Moses' flawed question from the start. Ever since he got called in chapter 3, who am I, God? Who am I that Israel's going to listen? Who am I that Pharaoh's going to listen to me? The point's not who Moses is, no. The point is who God is. The Egyptians need to know who Yahweh is. Verse 5, then they shall know that I am Yahweh. And God is saying here, Moses, they're going to know me. Pharaoh is going to hear me through you. You are my proxy. The word, fun fact, the word like in verse 1 of chapter 7 does not appear in the Hebrew text. The verse in Hebrew literally reads, See, Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Christopher Wright explains, Moses will address the word of God to Pharaoh with all the authority of God, as if Yahweh himself were present. Church, do we realize that when we address the word of God to unbelievers today, we do so with the full authority of God as if Yahweh himself were present? Because he is. I mean, if, if Yahweh has at some point in your life, in your past, I pray, like he did with Moses, brought you to an end of yourself, and in your weakness, you cried out to God and surrendered and let his strength be more than enough in your time of need, in your sinfulness. God, I, I'm come to the end of myself. I'm, I'm turning from my self-reliance to you. I'm surrendering. I'm trusting you to be more than enough for me, trusting Jesus to be your Savior. Then Jesus has also filled you with himself. His very own Holy Spirit now lives within you. 
like Moses, we are now God's proxies. We are God's hands and feet in the world. We are God's plan A to reach a lost and broken world with the hope and the love of Christ, and there's not a plan B. We are God's plan for deliverance. The church is. We are his agents, his representatives. We are authorized to act, to minister to others on God's own behalf. Do we feel the weight of this, that the responsibility, but the privilege of this? Do we realize, as William Toms famously put it, that you may be the only Bible that many people ever read? You will be the only sermon that many of your friends and family members will ever hear. They're not listening to me. Sure, share my sermons. with. Go online. Hey, send them the link. This sermon was great. Listen. They're not going to listen for 45 minutes. They barely want to listen to you for 45 seconds. You are the Bible. You are the sermon. Your life. 2 Corinthians 3 says, We are letters from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. To be known and read by all. By all. We are God's letters that he's sending out into the world. You're the Bible for many of the people in your life. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you hear God's calling this morning to go out into the world and preach to all creation. To go make disciples of all the nations. And you think, but God, who am I? I can't preach. God, I don't talk good. I can't make disciples, God. I don't know the Bible front to back like my pastors. God, who am I? And God needs to remind you this morning that you're asking the wrong question. It's not about who you are. It's never been about who you are, who Moses is, who I am. It's about who he is. It's about who he's filled you with, himself. You're right. Your unbelieving coworkers, your unsaved family members... They don't need to hear from you. They don't need to heed your advice, to, to hear your, your advice and, and follow you. But they absolutely need to hear from God, and they need to heed, heed his advice, his words. Follow him. And God has told us his plan for delivering them. You will be my witnesses. That's the plan. We will be his witnesses. Church, don't rob someone this week of the chance to hear from God. Don't rob someone this week of the chance to come to personally know Jesus for themselves. May we make him known in all of our words, thoughts, and actions as we are filled with his spirit and called as his ambassadors. Amen? Halfway through. Step number four. It's a petrifying, a hardening into stone. That's what petrifying means. Specifically, petrification of Pharaoh's heart. God says here, Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron then shall be your prophet. So verse 2, I'm going to talk to you, you're going to talk to Aaron, and Aaron will go talk to Pharaoh. Why? Why the, the game of telephone seems inefficient? Well, because Pharaoh needs to be put in his place. A Pharaoh may fancy himself the most important, powerful person in the world, Pharaoh may think to himself, Moses and Aaron, you must not realize who you're talking to here. You must not realize who you're making demands of here. Let my people go. But God's reply is, no, Pharaoh, you don't recognize who you're talking to. Or rather, who you're not talking to. Because God is going to say, I, Yahweh, I'm so high above you, Pharaoh, and I'm so perturbed, put out by your insubordination, that I'm not going to talk to you, actually. I'm going I'm to talk to my man, Moses, and then he's going to talk to his brother, Aaron, his prophet, and then you can deal with Aaron from here on out, okay? And again, the point is to put Pharaoh in his place. Pharaoh, you're not important enough to, even, to get a meeting with me. In fact, you can't even get a meeting with my assistant. Let's see if my assistant's assistant can schedule some time with you. That's how important I am, Yahweh. So God tells Moses, Moses tells Aaron, Aaron tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Verse 3, I but, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This is perhaps the hardest uh, part of the whole Exodus story for many of us to swallow. 
It's also one of the most important theological truths for us to understand as well, that God himself hardens Pharaoh's heart. Some will try and soften the theological impact of it. They'll say, well, you know, as we're going to see in the next two weeks to come, after this, studying the ten plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart for the first five plagues, and they'll point out, you know, it's really only God is confirming Pharaoh's rejection, Pharaoh's choice in the final five plagues. They'll point out, oh, there's two different Hebrew verbs at play here for harden, kabed, which means to make heavy, and then kazak, which means to strengthen. And so Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, and God's just reifying, firming up Pharaoh's rejection and decision. The problem is those two verbs are used interchangeably for both Pharaoh and God all throughout the story, all ten plagues, as we're going to see. And also, following plagues three and five, the gnats and the livestock, we'll see next week, the text is going to clearly say, as it does in verse 13 for today, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, passive voice. Not that he does it himself, it was hardened, presumably by God. And even when Pharaoh hardens his own heart in plagues one, two, and four, the text is going to make it clear he only does so in accordance with God's command. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart as God had said he would, as God had ordained that he would. Because the fact of the matter is, before Moses even ever confronted Pharaoh, even asked him him to let Israel go, all the way back in chapter 4, God had already told Moses, listen, when you go back to Egypt, do the miracles for Pharaoh, but I'm just going to let you know now, I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to listen. It's not going to matter. I will, because I, Yahweh, will harden his heart. So all in all, the book of Exodus attributes the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to Pharaoh some three or four times, but to God, 21 times, if you count. So the point is clear. God does the hardening. Now that's hard for us to swallow because we're not just talking about Pharaoh, are we? I don't, I don't want to believe that the reason that my brother-in-law, not Teddy, Polly's brother, other side, my family, sister, husband. I don't want to believe that the reason, despite growing up in church, hearing the gospel a thousand times probably, I don't want to believe that the reason my brother-in-law couldn't care less about Jesus, has absolutely no spiritual appetite for the things of God, that the reason is because God himself has hardened Nick's heart. You don't want to believe that the reason your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, your spouse is still living without Jesus in this life, or perhaps even worse, died without knowing Jesus, because then the decision is final. There's no coming back, Hebrews 9.27. We all die once, and then comes the judgment. And we don't want to believe that the reason that some of our unsaved loved ones are burning in hell right now and that they will burn there for the rest of eternity is because God himself hardened their hearts. This is hard to believe. Here is what God's word tells us in Romans chapter 9. When Rebekah had conceived children by our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had not yet done anything, either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works done by them, but because of him who calls, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated before they were even born. Translation. Israel was God's chosen people, not because of anything they had done or would one day come to do as a nation. They're going to disobey God time and time and be faithless to him, but solely because of God's gracious and sovereign choice. No amens. So let's continue. See if you like this any better. Paul continues, Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is, how are we supposed to respond to this? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, 
Now Paul connects it specifically to our story. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Turn to Romans 9 if you haven't yet. We're going to be here for a little bit. I should have put it on the screen for you. Don't get lazy. Keep your Bibles open with you when when we're preaching. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Translation, it is not unjust for God to harden anyone's heart and send them to hell. What is unjust is that God would soften anyone's heart and let them into heaven. That is the only injustice here. We are all rightfully deserving of hell. What is unfair is God's mercy and his compassion. Friends, do not assume that people ought to go to heaven and then ask, how could God possibly send folks to hell? Rather, we ought to assume that we should all go to hell and marvel at God's grace and mercy. God, how could you possibly let anyone in, much less a sinner like me, into heaven? And if God chooses to allow others, like Pharaoh, like your brother-in-law, your spouse, to reject him, and God hardens their hearts so that he might show his power over them so that God might display his strength, his miracle-working, plague-producing strength so that God might display his justice, God's righteous wrath against sin and his just punishment of sin, then frankly, friends, according to God's word, that is God's prerogative. That's what makes him God and us not God. He is sovereign Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul says that you and me questioning God's choice of some people for heaven and others for hell is like a lump of clay complaining to the potter, but I wanted to be a beautiful vase for flowers and not a a pot used for people to poop in. That is the analogy that Paul makes. That's the metaphor. And his point is, the clay doesn't get to decide what it's used for. If God wants to make you a toilet, that's what he'll do. That is the potter's prerogative. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? Again, the real question is, why did God allow Pharaoh 10 chances, 10 plagues, 40, 60, 80 years. Many of your loved ones will reject God, spit in his face for 90 years. Why does God give them that long, that many chances to repent and turn to him? God's patience is the real injustice. But what if God endures wrestles of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Translation, friends, God is sovereign. Totally sovereign. Yes, even over, especially over salvation. And praise God that he is, because left on your own, if the decision was yours to make, you would never choose God. You are far too too big a sinner. You would never choose God if the choice was yours. But praise God, he has chosen you. Some of you. I pray he's chosen you personally. Step number five in God's plan is a promise, specifically God's promise of deliverance for his people. Verse four, I will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, but a promise of destruction for his enemies. Deliverance for his people, destruction for his enemies. I'm going to do it, God says, by laying my hand on Egypt with great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians shall know that I'm Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against them. And since we're running out of time, I'm going to 
let the next two sermons uh, prove to exposit that portion of God's promise for us, God's promise of the plagues, the 10 plagues that we're going to study the next two weeks to go. And so we'll continue step six. Step six in God's plan is a portent. A portent is an indication or omen of something about to happen, especially something momentous and threatening. Verses 6 through 12 here are a portent, a threatening, ominous preview of what is coming for Egypt because of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on that we don't have a lot of time for. The word for serpent used here in chapter 7, Tannin, is a different Hebrew word than the one used back in chapter 4, Nahash, when God first demonstrated this miracle, the staff turning to the serpent. Uh, back in Midian, a Nahash is a little snake. A Tannin is a great giant reptile. Some think maybe it was a crocodile because Egypt's sort of unofficial mascot. Others think it was a big snake because the cobra was kind of Pharaoh's unofficial personal mascot. And so Philip Riken notes, when Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his, his snake swallowed up their snakes, it was a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty, claim to sovereignty and lordship. To draw a modern comparison, he says it would be like taking a bald eagle into the Oval Office and wringing its neck. But one way or another, this reptile, it was bigger than the one Moses expected the staff to become. It's kind of like God is saying, Moses, I remember in chapter 5, you failed to perform the miracles I told you to do for Pharaoh because you doubted me. You thought, oh, maybe God won't come through. I'm just going to show you how, how much I'm going to come through, how big I'm going to come through. I'm going to turn it into a snake 10 times bigger than what I did in Midian, 10 times bigger than you're expecting. I will come through on my promises. Scholars also debate whether this was just sort of a sleight of hand magic tricks by Pharaoh's sorcerers. We know their names, by the way, are Janus and Jambres from 2 Timothy 3, 8. Or whether this was a bona fide miracle-working power, albeit satanic power. Verse 11 seems to suggest it was, that it was legit. They did it by their secret arts, their dark arts, their sorcery. And we know Ephesians 6, 12, Matthew 24, 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. There is real power in the occult. There is real power. Satan has real power. Satan can turn staffs into serpents. Satan turned himself into a serpent in the Garden of Eden. But he's still no match for God. That's the point. Aaron's serpent swallows up their serpents. God wins. And God is mercifully giving Pharaoh here a, a portent, a sign, a warning that things are not going to go well for him if he continues to harden his heart and oppose Yahweh. God will swallow him up. And as a matter of fact, that's the same verb that will be later used in chapter 15 to describe what God does to Pharaoh's army when they try and chase Israel across the Red Sea and the waves come and drown them. They are swallowed up. But friends, if you haven't heard anything that I've said all morning long. Please hear this in the conclusion. What's the point of this entire story? What's the purpose? Is it to prove that God had a plan to rescue his people 3,500 years ago from slavery in Egypt? Sure. But it's so much more than that. We've said all along in our study of Exodus, every part of this story, every part of the Old Testament is ultimately intended to point us to Jesus to God's rescue of his people, us, from our slavery to sin today. God's plan to deliver Israel here is a prefiguring. It's a paradigm. It's a pattern, a foreshadowing of his plan to save you and me through his son, Jesus. Jesus told us his purpose, the purpose for which he came to the earth. I came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19. The New Testament opens, Matthew 1, with Jesus' pedigree showing us that he was the Lion of Judah. He was the Savior Moses said, I'm not. I'm pointing ahead to that guy. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited son of David, her Messiah. His pedigree proves it. But he was even more than that. Jesus wasn't just you know, the, the, the Messiah, God's son. He was also God incarnate. He was God's most authoritative proxy because he was God in the flesh. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1 says. He is the exact representation of God's being, Hebrews 1 says. And yet, like Moses, 
as God, he was rejected by his own people, even crucified on a cross. And yet, as with Pharaoh, Israel's hardening, the hardening of Israel's heart was all part of God's plan. It's Romans 11. To incorporate the Gentiles, us. Every non-ethnic Jew in the room can now be included in God's plan of salvation because of Israel's temporary petrification of their collective heart. This is how God works in his sovereignty because fifthly, Jesus' promise is to deliver all those Jew, Gentile, slave free, black, white, male, female, every, everybody who belongs to him, Jesus promises to deliver us. But friends, he also promises to destroy and judge all who would reject him. And so sixthly, if you don't hear anything else, please heed God's warnings, his portent this morning and trust in Jesus. God's portents are everywhere. I got to officiate our brother Warren's funeral this past week. It's a joy to, to it's, it's bittersweet to, to celebrate funerals for believers. But every funeral is ultimately for, for the living. It's a portent. It is an omen of something momentous and threatening that is about to happen to you. You're going to be in the coffin sooner or later. And then what? Do you know where you're going after that? Do you know with absolute certainty? You can know this morning if you know personally the one who swallowed up the greatest enemy of all, death itself, 1 Corinthians 15, is now swallowed up and who now offers you eternal life instead. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning? Know him, and you will know eternal life. Reject him, harden your heart to him, and you will know God's justice and wrath.